0: Well, it is really good to be with you all today. And again, we appreciate and we thank you for your kindness and allowing us to share with you. And one thing that I always think about whenever I share in a group like this is our fellowship and our common bond in Christ. Many of you were just meeting for the first time, but we know that because of this Jesus that we've sung about today, we are family. And it's really special to be with you all. And we're going to be in Psalm 97 today, if you have your Bibles. And we're going to look at a passage that, at first glance, may not be a passage that you would think would be one that we would look at whenever we're looking at God's heart for the nations and God's heart to be known among the nations. But as we read through this psalm together and as we take a closer look, I think you'll see quite clearly why this is a passage that's relevant for us today as we think about God's mission to take the gospel of Christ to the nations. We're going to read through this passage And then we're just going to walk through it together. And I hope that you'll see the weightiness and the mighty power of God and the beauty of God here in the Psalms here in this particular passage. So let me just read this and then, as I said, we'll walk through it together. Psalm 97. The Lord reigns. Let the earth rejoice. Let the many coastlands be glad. Clouds and thick darkness are all around him. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of his throne. Fire goes before him and burns up his adversaries all around. His lightnings light up the world. The earth sees and trembles. The mountains melt like wax before the Lord, before the Lord of all the earth. The heavens proclaim his righteousness and all the peoples see his glory. All worshipers of images are put to shame Who make their boast in worthless idols. Worship him, all you gods. Zion hears and is glad, and the daughters of Judah rejoice because of your judgments, O Lord. For you, O Lord, are most high over all the earth. You are exalted far above all gods. O you who love the Lord, hate evil. He preserves the lives of his saints, he delivers them from the hand of the wicked. Light is sown for the righteous, and joy for the upright in heart. Rejoice in the Lord, O you righteous, and give thanks to his holy name. When we look at a passage like this, as I said, we are called once again to submit ourselves to the weightiness of God, of the God that made us. I remember my wife and I, if you saw in the video I mentioned it, we taught English in Korea. We were in Busan, South Korea. It's the second largest city, four million people, very large place, lots of things there to see and do. And one of the things that a lot of people visit when they go to Busan is a UN cemetery. It's a United Nations cemetery that is uh, dedicated to the Korean War and to all the people that died in the war and to all of the different nations that sent soldiers to fight in the war. There's something like seven or 10 nations that sent people to fight against communism there in that war. And the cemetery is not even maintained by the city of Busan, it's actually maintained by the United Nations, it's a very nice place. It's large and they have these walking paths that go through there so you can just kind of walk and reflect, it's a very quiet place. And as you walk through the cemetery there are these signs everywhere that say, quiet please, please be respectful, and it's in English and in Korean. And my wife and I were visiting the cemetery and we're walking through the cemetery talking about... The difficult, the terrible things that happened in that war. Just reflecting on the horrors of all of the lives lost. Just trying to be very contemplative. And as we're walking on one of these paths, all of a sudden the quiet is shattered by three middle school boys running past us playing tag, yelling and screaming. And they're just joking and playing like they're in the middle of a park. And I'm a teacher. I've learned enough Korean to yell at kids. And it just instantly irritated me. Because the signs are right there. And this is such a... a, a heavy place, such a place that demands contemplation. There's a certain amount of respect that you should give when you're in a place that's recalling all of these men and women that gave their lives. And yet here are these kids playing. And so I yell at them in Korean. I tell them, stop, be quiet. I pull out out all of my teacher Korean for yelling at students. And so they're quiet for a moment until they get out of arm's reach and then they start playing again and yelling and laughing. And it was just so irritating to me because of their lack of respect. I tell that story because I think that's often what we do with God. We lack a sense of reverence when we go into his presence. We lack a sense of understanding just where we are and who we're speaking with and we go oftentimes into, maybe at the end of the day, we say a quick prayer, we read a quick Bible verse or two, we go to bed, we kind of give him the scraps at the end of our day or we pray and when we pray, we're not really totally focused. We rush through our prayers before our meals, we rush through our prayers for whatever we're doing and then we get on to the real important things. And so often we're like those kids, too ignorant, too foolish, too absent-minded to recognize who we're dealing with whenever we say that we're talking to God. And so this passage today reminds us of who our God is reminds us, if we're a Christian, who our Father is. And so this passage is not only a call to worship and a call with God wanting to take his glory to the nations, but it's also a call to the people of God to once again humble ourselves and bow before this majestic king that we serve. So let's look together at verse 1. Verse 1 is interesting. It, It sort of sets the psalm off. It's kind of the purpose statement for the psalm. It gets us going, and it says, The Lord reigns, let the earth rejoice. And I want to say at the beginning that Psalm 97 finds itself in this really interesting section of Psalms. Psalm 93 up until Psalm 100, this very short section, is really interesting in the Old Testament because it sort of zooms out and gives us a picture of God's heart for the nations. Most of the Old Testament is God dealing with his covenant people. Most of the Old Testament is God dealing with the Jewish people. And we see his covenant love for them. And we see him forgiving them as they sin over and over again. So we know that God always had a heart for the nations. But we see that focus on Israel in the Old Testament. And yet there are parts, there are sections. Where God's heart for the nations shines through. And we see that particularly in Psalm 93 up until Psalm 100. And so the theme here in this psalm is that all of the earth should rejoice in the reign of God. Notice here in verse 1, it doesn't say the Lord reigns, let Israel be glad, let Israel rejoice. No, you can't get any more global, you can't get any more zoomed out than saying all of the earth is called to rejoice in the Lord's reign. And there's another thing that's important here. You see the word Lord is all capital letters. And when you see that going through the Old Testament, it's easy to skip over that. It's it's easy for your eyes not to catch it. But when it's in all capital letters, that's important because that's cluing us in that that is the name of God. That's translated from Hebrew. That's Yahweh. That's God's name. So this is a very specific person. This is not a title. This is someone's name. So when it says the Lord reigns, all capital letters, this means a specific person. The covenant-keeping God of Israel, Yahweh himself, reigns. So this is distinguishing God from all of the pagan gods that surrounded Israel. And it's giving ownership rights. It's giving the claim on the creation of the earth to a specific person, which is God. And so because the Lord reigns, what should happen? All nations, all coastlands should be glad in God. The gladness, the joy that is to be found is when a creature knows their creator. And in the Old Testament, whenever you see this allusion to the coastlands like we see here, you can also translate that as the islands or the nations. And it's just kind of shorthand for all of the places outside of Israel, all of the lands all of the cultures, all of the people groups that exist outside of Israel, those are kind of all lumped together in the shorthand for all of those people, all of those Gentiles is coastlands or islands. So what's amazing here is this. This psalm, get how, get how global, get how international, how universal this calling is. This psalm is welcoming everyone that exists on this earth to come and find joy In their Creator. And as we read this psalm with Christian eyes, we know that the ultimate King is Jesus. So this psalm is a call to worship. And we can say, with the authority of this psalm, that all locations in the world, all languages, all lands, all cultures, all peoples, all nations are called to humbly submit before God and find joy in their Creator. So when we talk about doing missions, it's not just that we have Matthew chapter 28, the Great Commission. It's not just that that is the only passage in the Bible that deals with missions. It's all throughout. And missions is ultimately about God. You see, if you have a small view of God, you will have a small view of missions. If you have a small view of who this God is, it won't bother you that much that many in the world still don't know Christ. But when we look at a passage like this and we see the greatness of, the God, of this God and we see that he's called to be worshipped because of who he is, then it becomes troublesome to us that he is not worshipped around the world. So missions ultimately becomes about God's fame being spread and secondarily for the benefit of the people that receive the word of Christ. So we can say with the authority of this passage that people in Malaysia and Indonesia and India and China and Japan and Australia and Canada and the United States are called to humbly submit themselves to God and find joy in Christ. That's what we see here in this passage. So the coastlands are called to be glad in Him. The islands are called to be glad. So when we go to Japan to take the gospel of Christ... One thing you must always keep in mind with missions work is we are taking a message from the one that made the earth. And again and again and again I stress this fact because oftentimes, especially outside the church, you have people that believe that missions is wrong because all religions are equally valid. But if you look at Acts chapter 17 when Paul is preaching at Athens, he's preaching there in this hub of philosophy and religion and Greece. And what he says is, I'm delivering you a message from the Creator who has put his stamp of approval on Jesus because he resurrected him from the dead. So from the very beginnings of the Christian message, the gospel has always been couched in terms of being a message from the God that made us. And so when you look at it at that level, missions is appropriate, not because you're taking your Western culture to these foreign lands and forcing it on them. You're becoming a mouthpiece for the creator who has given us Christ as the apex of his revelation to us. That's what we see when we look throughout the scriptures. So then if you look at verses 2 through 5, who is this God? The nations are called to worship him, but who is this God that the nations are called to come and know? And this is why I I told that illustration at the beginning of the UN Cemetery, because especially when you read through verses 2 through 5, if you allow the weight of the descriptions of our God, To really touch you at your core. It is quite heavy. And we can see that we are called to give him all reverence that we can. Look here at how it describes God. And this is a picture of God coming to the earth. Clouds and thick darkness are all around him. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of his throne. When it says that clouds and thick darkness are all around God, this is hearkening back to Exodus chapter 19. If you remember Exodus chapter 20, God gives the Ten Commandments to Moses. But before that, God meets with Moses on Mount Sinai. And the the people of Israel see God coming to the earth. And if you remember that account, God tells Moses, in three days, I'm coming to Mount Sinai. I want you to tell the people to prepare themselves because I'm going to enter the human realm and I'm going to occupy Sinai. So I want you to tell the people to clean themselves, prepare themselves, don't do things that will make them unclean, and get ready for my entrance. And when I come and when I occupy this mountain, if a man or an animal breaks through and touches this place that I am occupying, kill him or kill the animal. That's how holy I am. I cannot be touched by people that are profane compared to my holiness. And then the scriptures say that when God comes, lightnings, fire, smoke, clouds, they envelop this mountain. And that's the same language that we see here. So God is coming in this terrifying sense and he's surrounded by clouds and a thick darkness. That's a symbol of his inapproachability. It's a symbol of his distinctness. We can't get into this God and touch him because he's so high above us. He's so great. He's so grand that he's surrounded himself with this buffer, this mighty and terrifying cloud and smoke and thunder to keep us out of his presence because we cannot go in without dying. That is our God. That is the God that calls the nation's To worship him. And then this passage goes on to say that he's a king and every king has a throne, and the very foundation of his throne, it says to us here, is righteousness and justice. How amazing is that? We look at King Jesus and it says that the very foundation of his throne, in other words, the very essence of who he is, is justice and righteousness. Compare that with our politicians today. No matter who your person was, Trump or Clinton or someone else, it doesn't matter, no king, no president, no politician in all of the earth can say to you, the very essence of my rule is both righteousness and justice. Think of this God that we serve. Now what's amazing is You can look at other religions. You can look at religions around Israel in this day and you would have seen descriptions of God maybe similar to this. God that is big and God that made the world and God that is so powerful. But you would never find a description of an ancient pagan God that was powerful and holy. Only Yahweh, only the God of Israel can claim that for himself. That in accord with his power and is also rightness and purity and holiness. So as this passage goes on and on, then you start to see, of course the nations are called to know this God. He is the only one that there is, and He is their only hope. The passage goes on, and there is a short break when we look at the the throne of God and its characteristics, but then the passage becomes heavier and heavier, and we're going to see that in a moment. But the question for you is this, And this is kind of in line with what I said at the beginning. How do you view God? How do you, in your heart, when you're alone with him, how do you view God? Not when you're in front of the church, not when you're leading a Bible study, but in your quiet, when it is just you and your maker. Who do you think you are dealing with? See, our culture, and I think this has bled into the church, our culture has a way of trivializing the holy. Our culture has a way of trivializing even God. And I saw this clearly a few years ago. I was on the internet and I saw an article and it says something like, this is the best NASCAR prayer ever. And I've never watched a NASCAR race. If you're a NASCAR fan, that's great. I'm I'm just not into it. But I had to click the link. And apparently it's customary, maybe before all races, I don't know, for someone to pray. And so this prayer, this minister, I don't know who he was, he came up and he begins to pray. And I'm watching this. And as he prays, he starts by thanking God for all of the different tires and wheels and parts that are being used that day. And then he thanks God for the great track that they're going to race on. And you can tell that he's joking and he's doing it kind of very tongue-in-cheek. And the, the camera is sort of panning the audience and the drivers are laughing and people are laughing and, and everyone's chuckling. And then at the end of his, sur- uh, his prayer, he thanks God for his smoking hot wife. This is the way he did it. And then he closes by saying, um, in Jesus' name, boogity, 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 amen. And everybody laughs and everybody thinks it's amazing and you can tell, okay, we got the customary prayer of the way. The drivers chuckle. They're in a good mood. God. The God that threatens to crush us if we enter his present was made the butt of a joke. And people laughed and they went on with the race and no one thought about it. And that is this God from this passage. And we trivialize him. But if we allow who he is to touch us, we will be different. We will care about the nations, but we will also care about how he is viewed. The passage goes on. Verse 3, fire goes before him and burns up his adversaries all around. Now we see not only that he's holy and that he's mighty, we see that his wrathful and holy zeal for his name causes his enemies to be consumed in his presence. Now this, obviously, as I've been talking about our culture and the view of God, it's a little bit unnerving to think about this God that's burning people up in his fire, consuming his adversaries. But two things. One, we have to remember that he always acts in accord with his character. And we've already seen that his character is righteousness and justice. So if this God is judging, if this God is burning up his enemies all around him, and fire is a symbol for judgment in the scriptures, we know that he's judging them rightfully. In other words, this is not a capricious judgment where he's just zapping people left and right. This is a righteous judgment passion for his name that demands that those that hate him and do wrong be rightly dealt with. And if you skip back just a few psalms, Psalm 94 is all about how the people of God are struck down, overwhelmed, mistreated by those that hate God. And the psalm says that those that hate God, they kill the orphan, they kill the widow. They don't think that God hears, they don't think that God sees it. But it says in the end, the last verse in Psalm 94, he will bring back on them their iniquity and wipe them out for their wickedness. The Lord our God will wipe them out. So we think of this God and we recognize that in his righteousness he still judges and he will wipe out those that do injustice in the earth because his character demands it. So we should not be people that defang God and take away his holy attributes of justice and judgment. So he deals with his enemies rightly. Then verse four, his lightnings light up the world. The earth sees and trembles. Then verse five, the mountains melt like wax before the Lord, before the Lord of all the earth. So in this picture here, in this scenario that we're seeing worked out, God is coming closer to the earth. Lightnings light up the world. So imagine a lightning storm so big that everyone on the earth sees it. And imagine that the lightning is happening in a response to God coming into this realm. And then imagine, it says, that the earthquakes. We know, scientifically speaking, naturally speaking, that earthquakes occur whenever tectonic plates under the surface of the earth bump one another, and that friction occurs, and then an earthquake happens. So they're still scary, but we can kind of deal with it if we understand scientifically what's happening. It's just a natural process of this bumping together. But what happens when the earth is quaking and shaking, not because of the movement of tectonic plates, but because of the entrance into this realm of the God that made it? So he comes, lightning happens, the earth itself shakes because God comes, and then the mountains melt like wax. Imagine what the psalm is getting at here. Mountains are pictures of strength and stability, right? People run to the mountains when cities are being bombed, or people go to the mountains whenever they're fleeing from their enemies because mountains don't move. They're these huge, massive rocks that dwarf humans, and we look at them and we see God's majesty. And yet when God enters, mountains themselves melt like a candle under a flame, And one Bible commentator, Derek Kidner, says this, There is no escape. To speak of mountains melting is to see the most immemorial landmarks disappear and the most solid of refuges dissolve. Get that. The mountains themselves can do nothing but melt in the presence of God. It's absolutely amazing. And yet... This God showing himself off in such terrifying ways, the Bible also says this is our Father. We have to have one in the same, right? He is, how can you describe it? He is terrifyingly powerful and yet immensely loving. Both are seen here. God is Father to those that know Christ. And so we don't want to look at this passage and say, He's just so scary. He's just so out there. He's just so big and He melts mountains. We can't ever get close to Him. This same God welcomes us to come boldly through Christ. And this same God is our Father. Christ is our shepherd and the Spirit is our comforter. This God shows himself in great power but he also shows himself in great grace by welcoming us to him and by welcoming the nations to him. So this is not a different God from the one that we see in the New Testament but this is a reminder that we often need to look at. Then in verse 6, the psalm takes a different turn a little bit. Up to this point, the earth itself The mountains and the land has been used as sort of a canvas for God to display his power. And now, in verse 6, the heavens themselves join in this sort of canvas of nature being used to glorify God. The heavens proclaim his righteousness and all the peoples see his glory. What's probably being said there is this. When God comes and he returns in this righteous act of judgment, the heavens themselves see him at work. They're displaying his righteousness. They're displaying him bringing the earth back in line with his standard of righteousness as he judges. So he comes in the clouds. He brings judgment with him. And in doing so, he's actually displaying his righteousness as he puts the earth right by removing the wicked and bringing about justice once again. And this is what we see throughout the Psalms. Over and over in the Psalms, inanimate objects, objects, parts of nature that have no breath, the hills, the rivers, the trees, the valleys, the gates of the temples, these things that don't have breath in themselves, they are called upon to worship God. It's almost as if the psalmist is saying to us, the earth itself, although it has no mind, still has enough knowledge to worship the Creator when the Creator comes. And so here, the heavens themselves are called upon to proclaim His righteousness. It's almost as if the psalmist can't get enough things or people involved in the worship of God. The peoples of the earth are called to worship Him. Trees, valleys, rivers, mountains, heavens, stars. Everything here falls under the God of all the earth. And so everything here is called to exercise itself in worship of God. But then verse 7, this is absolutely amazing. All worshipers of images are put to shame. There's this really strange turn in the psalm. The God of verses 1 through 6, who made the world, and the God that comes to judge rightly, amazingly, there are people in this world that worship idols. Amazingly, there are people in this land that do not worship the God that we've seen displayed. And in fact, they opt to worship false gods. They opt to worship idols. So it's a really, really strong turn in the psalm. God's worthy of worship, not just in Israel, but in all of the earth. And yet, people throughout the earth choose to worship images. And it says there that those who worship images will be put to shame and those that make their boast in worthless idols. That is an absolutely crazy fact to me. Allow this to sink in. In this world today, there are literally millions upon billions of people that worship false gods. Yahweh made the earth. Yahweh has sent his son so that we might know him. And yet millions upon billions throughout this world, owned by God, opt for idols. In this world today, there are one billion Hindus. That's one-seventh of the world's population. And in the Hindu religion, there are 330 million gods. They worship idols. They worship things here that will bring them shame. They worship things here that the Bible says are worthless. In this world today, there are 330 million Buddhists. My wife and I in Korea, we saw this all of the time. I remember a time going to a Buddhist temple. There was a Buddhist monk. His back was to everyone. He was in the temple building. People were outside looking and watching him. And I watched him over and over again. There are these idols in front of him. And he stands up and then he gets on his knees and then he prostrates himself all the way. And then he stands up again, gets on his knees and prostrates himself all the way. And I remember I could hear his, his knees and his ankles popping as he stood up and bent down and stood up and bent down. And the whole time he's worshiping nothing. He's worshiping the wrong God in the world that's owned by God. He's worshiping a worthless idol. And my wife and I have been to India. We were on the Ganges River. The Hindu religion believes that if a person dies, if only a small part of their body, even a chip of a bone, can be put into the river after they die, they are gained or they are allowed entrance into paradise. And we're going down the river on a boat and we're looking out and it's just this area of all of these idols and these temples and people are literally embalming people or sorry, cremating. <laughs> My dad's a funeral director. I'm good. They're cremating people on funeral pyres on the side of the river and they're taking their ashes and putting them in the river and we're going down and the, the smoke is just enveloping the whole area. And there's a sign, one of those signs that has a scrolling message on it. The Indian people call the Ganges River Ganga. And there's a sign, and I look up and it says, Ganga cleanses sin and sinner. Ganga cleanses sin and sinner. And it's just cycling through, and people are worshiping, and people are taking their loved ones and putting them in the river, and it goes nowhere. And so we don't say that our religion is just a little bit better than the Hindu religion or a little bit better than the Buddhist religion. No, we say against the grain of the world that there is absolute truth and absolute truth is found in the God that made the world. And so we can say boldly that if you worship an idol, you will be put to shame because it is a worthless object that means nothing. That is what we see in this passage. So, Ladies and gentlemen, it should bother us that that is the case. It should bother us that billions and billions don't know Christ. It is about the glory of God ultimately, but we also care about souls. And so we ought to be involved in some way with God's mission to the world. We ought to care. And the wonderful thing is this. Even if you can't leave Springfield, God is drawing the nations to Springfield Through the university, through MSU, many are coming from China, from Saudi Arabia, from other Islamic countries where it's very difficult to go there as a missionary, but it's very easy to host them in your home. It's very easy to meet with them. It's very easy to be involved in that. And the statistics are staggering. They say something like 90% of international students that are in the States will never enter an American home, but they want to. So in this passage today, don't go away saying, there's nothing I can do. How can I be involved? The opportunities are here to love them and to be a mouthpiece for this God that's made them and caused them through Christ. Look at verse 8. In contrast to the worshipers in verse 7 that are going to be put to shame, verse 8 says, Zion hears and is glad and the daughters of Judah rejoice at your judgments. Shorthand, the people of God rejoice at God's judgments. The people of God rejoice when God works. So the worshipers of false idols are put to shame, but the people of God rejoice. We are the people of God. This passage has already been fulfilled in many ways because we, I assume there are probably not any people that are um, Jewish here. And if you are, that's great. But we, by and large, are Gentiles, from the coastlands, from the faraway nations outside of Israel that have come to Christ, that have come to the Son of God through the proclamation of the gospel. And so we find ourselves being part, you might say, of spiritual Israel. We are part of God's people and we do worship Him. And so we are part of the people that rejoice at the judgment of God, at God working and moving in this world. And so we can expect nothing except for Him to bless us both now and in eternity with Christ. But what is the fate of those who worship idols? Judgment. The judgment of God. O you who love the Lord, sorry, verse nine, for you, O Lord, are most high over all the earth. You are exalted far above all gods. How else can the psalmist say it? Now he says, you're the God of all the earth. All nations should come to him. All coastlands should come to him. All the earth is his. All peoples are his. You can't get more zoomed out and comprehensive than that. And where it says there, you are exalted far above all gods. Most commentators don't believe that that's talking about the idols that we saw in verse 7. Most commentators think that's talking about gods in the spirit realm. So we might say demons, Satan, good angels. Not only in the, uh, the realm of humanity, but also in the spirit realm, God reigns. The earth is his, the peoples are his, the demons are his, Satan is his, angels are his. Everything belongs to this God. And then in verse 10, this is really the thrust of the psalm. It is a psalm that's looking to the nations, but it's also a psalm to encourage the people of God that he will care for them and that he will provide. Oh, you who love the Lord, hate evil. If you're God's people, hate the things that God will judge others for that don't know Christ. He preserves the lives of his saints and he delivers them from the hand of the wicked. God will deliver. God will provide. That's what we see in Psalm 94, as I said. All throughout the psalm, the people of God are saying, God, my foot's slipping. I'm scared. Where are you? The wicked rise up. They are slaying us. What will we do? And then at the end, it says, God will take care of the wicked and he will provide for his people. So even if not in our bodies when we are persecuted, In our souls, He will eventually and finally deliver us to paradise. But God is for His people. Now that's absolutely amazing. This God that we've seen, who comes in this terrifying power, He has a people. If you're a Christian, you are part of the people of God, the people of God that stretch back to this psalm that happened hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years even before Jesus was on this earth. We are part. Of the people of God. We are part of the family of Zion. And He will take care of us. And then verse 11 says, Light is sown for the righteous. A better way to say that is light dawns. The light has dawned for us. In the morning, when the dawn comes, it's already looking forward to the noonday sun. It's already a pretaste of the sun that will fully express itself at noon. Light has already dawned for the people of God. So all that we can expect is things to get better and better. But all that idol worshipers can expect is things to get worse and worse, culminating in the judgment of God falling on them. And then verse 12, this psalm ends the way that it starts, with a call to worship. Rejoice in the Lord, O you righteous, and give thanks to his holy name. It starts with a call to worship for all of the earth, Let the earth rejoice in him. And then how does it end? Rejoice in him. Rejoice in Yahweh, O you righteous, and give thanks to his holy name. Throughout this psalm, what do we see? The God of Israel, who expresses himself today most fully in our king, King Jesus, is the God of all the world, and he calls all of the earth to worship him and find joy in him. This is not a submission where we are afraid of him. This is a submission where we joyfully find our greatest happiness in his son. But bound up in the psalm is this sense that there is truth and there is falsehood and those who follow the path of falsehood will be put to shame. But if you're one of the people of God you have nothing to expect except for his covenant mercies to you. But How? The people of God are broken inside. We have done the same things that unbelievers do. How is it that we can expect that God is for us? The cross. All of the terrifying power that we see displayed when God comes to Mount Sinai with thunders and lightnings and smoke where people can't touch the mountain or they'll be killed because he's so holy all of that holy, righteous anger against sin is poured out on his son. And his son dies for his people and his son is worthy to be worshipped to the farthest reaches of the earth. So the question is, one, do you know him as Savior? And if you don't, today he welcomes you. He welcomes you through his son that died. And two, do we care about the glory of Christ everywhere in this world? Do we care that people don't know him and they don't know that they don't know him? Do we care that he is not worshipped and that there are people that believe that the Ganges cleanses sin and sinner? We ought to care. And then finally, I hope your view of God has been challenged. May we be people, yes, that care about the gospel going to the nations, but also people that care about how we view God and how we enter his presence and how we think of him. One person has said that the most important mark of a culture is how they view God. This is a great God, worthy of all of our worship, and a God that calls us and propels us to go out to the nations and ultimately to return to him in praise because of all that he's done through Christ. Let's pray. Father, how can we adequately worship you? How can we adequately praise you? You are worthy of the utmost worship because you are true. And when we view you in these terms of being the creator of the earth, it's almost frightening to see how powerful and majestic you are. But we turn to the cross and we look to Christ and we thank you that you welcome us as children. God, you are worthy of worship. Please humble us. Please cause us to be obedient and to find joy in you. And please bless this church today. Bless the way. Bless Seth as he leads it and the other ministers here. And be honored in this neighborhood, in this city, in this culture and around the world. Christ is worthy of all things, and we pray in his name. Amen.